0: And welcome to How to Grow a Pod, the podcast about podcasting, from the book How to Start and Grow a Successful Podcast, by me, Julie Smith. This is where you'll hear all the interviews from the book, and this week I'm with Matt Hill, co-founder of the British Podcast Awards and producer of Fern Cotton's Happy Place podcast and The Week Unwrapped. He tells us why you've got to have a format, how to think laterally about monetising, and why it helps to be a bit of a radio head.
1: Mm, um, so my background is I started out in theatre uh, and that's what I, what I did my degree in um, at university and then toured with a the theatre company for a, for a while um, and then we all got sick of each other and the van we were in and uh, decided that what we really wanted to do was um, pursue other avenues um, uh, and one of my f- first loves at uni was actually the student radio station. So I but I was trying to get into the industry at a time when uh, there was a recession on uh, how times change. Yes, indeed. And and so it was quite difficult uh, to try and break into radio. But I managed to get a kind of graduate position after doing an MA at Goldsmiths, where I actually got to meet some people who were in the industry, which is primarily the reason I did the course. Um, I managed to um, get a graduate position at uh, Channel 4, who were doing radio, um, and that lasted six months. When was that, Because of the Matt? recession. 2009. Right. OK.
0: So can I ask you a little bit about that? Because what I'm really interested in is how podcasting has sort of gone out of the Wild West, the sort of the pioneering amateur days, into uh, professional broadcasters, BBC Sounds, for example, Channel 4 Radio. I mean, what, first of all, did anybody explain to you... Why they're doing that for a start?
1: Well, I think the reason that Channel Four wanted to do uh, radio was that they saw an opportunity for intelligent speech, which was had a different sound than uh, than the traditional radio uh, speech uh, programming on on the BBC. Um, You know, it saw option, it saw avenues like drama as being sort of. Only for a specific audience, uh, you know, the afternoon play or afternoon drama, as it is now, um, you know, and really majority kind of, kind of the 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 idea was that it was aimed mostly at uh, middle aged housewives mm. was the idea, mm. um, and we, you know, I think they they were onto something there on the, on the basis of where podcasting has gone and and the fiction podcasts that have been targeted at younger and different uh, different demographics, so. I think that was part of what they wanted to do, um, and I think they just thought that there was there was money in it because there, there was literally it was about almost convi- sort of convincing sponsors and uh, commercial outlets that um, that there was a, a value in intelligent speech, which beyond talk radio, beyond phone-ins, that wasn't like a drive to the bottom, um, that was that, that kind of could build loyalty and. And bring a kind of affluent uh, audience with it. Were they right? I think podcasting has borne that out, but it has been a slow process. I think if Channel 4 had still been going, Channel 4 Radio hadn't been born in the middle of a... Of that recession, I think there was the possibility it had the best chance of anyone on the basis that they had a their own sales team that were being retrained in how to sell audio, but not sell it at the rate that commercial radio was at the time. Um, They were going to produce all their adverts in-house, which you know, looking at how most of podcasting works, it's kind of that benchmark of American public radio you know, they, the host red ad is something that we're not really used to in this country until podcasting came along. Um, but Channel 4 were, were planned to do something very similar. Mm. So, you know, they had a lot of the, lot of good ideas, but it kind of all imploded a bit quickly. But I came out of that process, um, you know, with a kind of database of the best international podcasts that we thought we might buy for, to fill the gaps in the schedule yeah. when we were launching. And I kind of took that as a bit of a template for what the uk industry could be like and started trying to make programs that were kind of commercially funded and um and uh it kind of borrowed a lot more from that kind of american storytelling model that had done really well for public radio
0: ira glass for example yeah yeah and uh, i interviewed ira glass last week um about how how storytelling how that sort of non-fiction narrative um has it's given a voice to podcasting there's something special you can hear what a podcast sounds like, certainly in the American domain. And it's now been kind of taken on by BBC Radio 4. You know, I sent him a couple of examples, Shortcuts, for example, um, Grace Dents, The Untold, um, those kind of ideas that are not podcasts, but sound like podcasts. And I wonder if those, the idea of that is to kind of pitch it to, pitch Radio 4 to a more millennial crowd
1: yeah I think it's very much about where the gaps are and I think both in North America and in the u k the idea has been to try and target millennials and what Radio Four would call um the replenishers like people who aren't ready for Radio four yet, but give them time they will be um well they should they should be they should be having programs made for them right now, and that's that's the kind of impatient business model of podcasting i suppose but what I think is interesting about what um, how the US and the UK and Canada differ, actually, is something a, a colleague of mine, uh, Matt Deegan, uh, has a good theory on, which is that, you know, in America, the thing that was lacking in, in public radio, in the radio market, was well-built, exceptionally like crafted documentary uh, shows. The kind of which the BBC make quite a lot of. Mm. So in the states, you know, you, this American Life was obviously a radio show. Uh, radio Lab was a radio mm. show, but they found new life as podcasts, and from that came this school of podcasting—the kind of Chicago school of storytelling. Really, mm. it was the same same model, wasn't it? Um, mm. Which which bred, you know, the Gimlet Stable and everything that Jada Brumrod does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all those all those great shows came from a kind of gap in the market they wanted to fill. Whereas in the UK, you know, we have the BBC, we have this kind of strong documentary uh, tradition with a European bent on it. And, um, and so for us, it was more about talk radio. It was about um, one-on-one interviews, long, in, long uh, informative interviews, which would traditionally only get like maybe tops eight minutes on five live. Or if you're lucky... One of the couple of half hour slots of Radio 4 once a week. Mm -hmm. So you could you can talk, you know, for a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour on a a UK podcast Mm -hmm. and feel in depth as a result of that. And that's normally why a lot of shows, a lot of podcasts tend to average around sort of 35, 45 minutes, because they just have to feel slightly longer than a Radio 4 show to sound very different. Yeah, I think
0: yeah and that's what you do mainly now isn't it um so so fern cotton as an example somebody who has a particular kind of persona on radio one and radio two has a totally different persona Uh, uh, her a much more authentic self is allowable on a podcast her own podcast it feels that she owns that space she can do whatever she wants to do with it can she as as her producer can 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 she do that
1: pretty much i mean it's it's fair to say that she does own it i think uh both literally and also in terms of like she has an investment in it she she you know she is the one booking the guests uh and i think that was important to both me and when i was discussing it with her agent you know the, that's part of a process that she should own because it comes across on in the episode and so you know some of her you know sort of standout episodes the ones she's most proud of are ones where she starts i've been trying to get this person on the show for months now or years you know i think um like elizabeth gilbert is a huge like hero of hers and that really comes across in the intro mm. to that show um i think the one with uh, hillary clinton which is a massive coup like that was you know a lot of hard work on her part yeah and you know, that uh, that really comes across and it, it it gives it a kind of authenticity, really, which, you know, I think has brought listeners to it, you know, and given given for a second audience.
0: Why is authenticity, do you think, so important in podcasting, where it's, is it so in, in radio? I'm not sure if it is.
1: I mean, it's definitely mixed up with um, uh, intimacy, isn't it? I think mm. if you're... If you're um, if you're being true to yourself in whatever form that is, I mean, there's always a bit of artifice about it, but I suppose there's less and less artifice the more you get down to one single voice. So if you then there's my, there's so many more auteurs in, in podcasting because it's so easy to produce and write and present on your own that you know it's really about that one-to-one connection with uh, with your listener. And on the receiving end of that, podcasting, as I think Miranda Sawyer said this week in The Observer, you know, is all about that kind of direct bond with one listener. We don't like to share our podcasts. It's part of the discovery problem we've had. But but you want to slip your headphones on and listen directly to them. So I think part of that authenticity is is just being that friend and being there for you every week and being a forming a relationship and if if you were to lie to your friends they probably wouldn't hang out with you so you know that i think it's all just tied into that that very personal relationship
0: yeah somebody said that it's actually because if you're wearing earbuds it's in your body you know noise cancelling headphones it's in your head you most people will listen to a podcast still with their headphones on in a way that you wouldn't listen to radio. Radio probably is on in the background a little bit. It doesn't matter so much. It's not a personal connection. I wonder how that
1: happened in the first place. Who who do you blame for that? Well, I don't know. I think podcasting had a crack of the whip before it really became a... An iPod, iPhone, like a a mobile-oriented response. You know, it it was incredibly different, difficult to listen to podcasts on a desktop computer, but you could do it. Um, But they just didn't seem right to have them playing out of those devices. Um, It felt like a very much a, a medium that was meant to be consumed whilst you were busy doing other things. And if it was on your, you know, if it was coming out of a speaker, you could only be certain those certain things the same things that radio were for but as soon as you could basically hit play and take it with you on a commute underground or through train tunnels or whatever um or similarly you know when you were cleaning or running or whatever you know the convenience of it being on demand tied with the fact that it was habit forming so you could listen to it on your weekly exercise routine or whatever that i think was part of the uh part of the draw for a lot of people mm-hmm. and i think now i, th- I still say you know when, when we're building new shows it's like that launch day dep- doesn't even though it's still on demand you know and you could listen whenever you like you need to give your listeners a bit of a helping hand and at least give them a good time of the week that it launches to to tie into their routine so are you more of a weekend show are you more of an evening like coming home from work show are you more of a kind of like briefing for the week or roundup of the week that will dictate what kind of time of the week you should re- release your show mm. and I think that intimacy uh, of the headphones is part of that um, that kind of ha- habit forming what personal routine am I going to do uh, to uh, and uh, add into this you know this podcast what how is it going to be enhanced yeah that's ex- I, think, like, I mean I I can think. I can think of Radiolab episodes from like ten years yeah. ago, and exactly where I was when I heard yeah. them. You know what yeah. train station platform I was on, yeah. and that and that. You know, I think is remarkable. Yeah,
0: absolutely, Amp, bang on, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about producing. Going back to what you were talking about with Fern, she owns it. She knows what she wants to talk about. How do you actually produce her? Does she send you? The WAV file and you edit it or do you work with her on focus framing she's a pro she's been doing it forever she's been presenting radio forever she knows what to do what does a podcast producer do with somebody like Fern Cotton
1: well I could tell you what this producer does with someone exactly like Fern Cotton because that's I think the way any producer has to like work with any talent Into create their show, you you are filling in the gaps really, and those gaps might be things that they want to they they don't want to do because they're boring, or it might be things that they like can't do because their skills lie elsewhere. So my job as producer, I think, is to fill in those gaps to create like a fully rounded, high quality uh, uh, production. Um, So my role really begins once the guest is booked and we've met for the interview so Fern will book the guests and she will write the questions and set the agenda and then once we get into the recording which I'll be uh, setting up whether that's on location face-to-face or booking a studio or doing it as we are at the moment remotely you know once we've set up the and got the best quality sound we can what I'll be doing is uh, listening to that interview as as Fern does it and she is you know a consummate live presenter she knows how to do the work on the tempo and the uh, the peaks and troughs and make it all work um so what i do is i kind of i leave that bit to her um give her a bit of a some timings as we go through just to make sure she knows when we need to wrap up and then we normally have so i normally try and wrap up five minutes before or well, allotted time and then, then what I'm doing during the recording is really listening on behalf of the listener to see if there is any gaps anything at all the listener might have be might be thinking at that point that Fern may have missed because she was thinking of the next question or you know perfectly natural kind of things that, that happen to anyone and so then I will just throw in a couple of questions at the end that we may or may not use, but might use, but be used to pick it up a little bit and make sense of something that didn't quite make sense at the time or, or whatever. Um, and that's kind of my role is really to tidy up in those last five minutes, make sure we've explored every angle and everything we need to do is done in for the listener. Um, and then and then I will edit the audio um, and make some editorial decisions about what stays in. Um, I. Uh, might flip around a few of the questions, but actually most of the time it's quite free-flowing and we keep it chronological, just yeah. basically DM.
0: So that's yeah. a, that's one of the big questions on some of the Facebook podcast groups, for example. DM or not to DM. um I leave them in. Um, I think it's yes, uh, yeah. most of the time, unless somebody is very, very stuttery, but if they are a stutterer, I'm a stutterer, I leave all my ums and ers in, um, because it... Um's a thinking space very often. And I want people to know that I'm thinking in the moment that I'm not reading from a list of questions. And similarly, if somebody's answering, if something's really Ira Glass, I left in the silences when he said, "I, I don't know, I haven't thought about that before. Yes. I asked Ara a question that he hadn't been asked before. I'm going to keep that silence. Um, you know, there's a reason for silences. There's a reason for ums and errs. Why would you take them out? What's the editorial moment where you think mm, that's got to go?
1: Well, for me, I think the editorial choice is leaving things in because you're making a point of saying that they didn't know the answer to that or that they... Um, I had to think for a long time about it i think grammatically well sorry the grammar of 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 audio is that even though people don't necessarily understand the, the terminology behind it potentially you know listeners will gravitate towards a silence and wonder what's coming next or what they're thinking about what they don't want to think about you know what they don't want to talk about so i think for the shows that i do that don't have that um Uh, well there's nothing to hide I mean I think one of the things we uh, with a few of the podcasts I do is we make a really clear point of saying we're not actually trying to screw anyone over here this isn't meant to be um like you know sort of gotcha journalism we want to have an honest conversation we want you to be open about that and so we're going to provide the sort of like the best version of your story that we can and so we will edit that so that it, it is told in the most entertaining and sort of um, sort of efficient way possible mm. that's the idea yeah um, it's, it's more about I would I mean when when we do leave things in it really matters and um, we I do like to do that when it's when we want to make a point of showing that that you know it was a tough question or it needed some nuance to answer and they really want to think about it I think those are all really good reasons to leave things in yeah. but if it's just that that's the way they are and You know, it takes them a couple of goes to get to the right answer. I'd rather cut the first couple of false starts uh, out and then get to the bit where they say what they mean.
0: Good advice. The million dollar question. How do you grow a successful podcast? Fern Cotton's always going to have thousands of listeners, Ah. but it's not the only podcast that you do. Give us an example of a podcast that you started that didn't have a big name attached to it and how you grew it into something that would be successful and what that means to you.
1: Yeah, um, there's a few technical points. I'm not sure if this one ticks all the boxes, but I think it it might do. So um, about three years ago, I set up a podcast with um, The Week magazine called The Week Unwrapped. It's a current affairs show. um, And the the point of the magazine is that they basically um, show you the best journalism from around the world. and, And Depending on which country the magazine's in that that particularly that country's journalism so the UK and um, and so the idea of the, the show it was built around the idea that we could um, take three stories that are underreported and then uh, and but have a massive impact for our lives basically so every show three members of the of the staff of the of the news team of the week .co.uk, um, would give you their kind of like their best their best shot at what will be the story we 'll be talking about in ten years' time um and um so we brought in a, a great host, Ollie Mann, who I work with on um a media podcast at the time and now another one called the modern man and um and we started making that show it 's um the format has not changed and the script barely does. You know, we, we change out the names and uh, the stories change. But actually, the template is very similar week after week. But what's really nice about it, I think, is that um, because we were the show that uh, it was the current affairs show that, no, like, that, um, that wasn't tackling the same stories as every other current affairs show, we quickly found a kind of current affairs junkie audience the, it, it quickly became their kind of like their second favourite current affair show. So if you listen to Election Cast or Brexit Cast or whatever, this is the show they listen to next because you get a completely different list of stories. Mm-hmm. So you've got the kind of like the part two of the news kind of thing after the break. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really important. Um, I think the second thing that happened, well, the second thing that was really good was Ollie brought an audience with him so his first and um, f- still his most popular show is answer me this which he started with helen zaltzman like over 10 years ago um that had a, a pre-built uk podcast listenership before any other podcast mm. really and so uh, uh, you know we had a great kickstart from that public from that um from that audience which gave it a real boost it took the week a long time to tell their audience about it They're a bit nervous. The magazine and the digital side, you know, didn't always communicate to each other. So it took a while to even get like an advert in the magazine. But I think whilst you might think, well, you know, good for them. How's that help any podcaster? I think it is really important to think about, What's the low-hanging fruit, even if they're not podcast listeners? Who do you have access to on your mailing lists, your subscribers, in, in your other media, your brand? Where Where is that audience? And can you draw them to it, first and foremost, to get, give you that audience, that pre-built audience that you need? So we had the Weeks audience coming on board now. We had Ollie's audience coming on board. And then I think the other thing that happened was we um, – sort of slightly by chance but what happened was um, we started talking about the show at uh, like gatherings like in terms of when we went to like media events or whatever um, and we got the ear of a couple of great podcasters who just really loved the show so I don't know if you know Pandora Sykes mm-hmm. and Dolly Alderson at um, the high low but they uh, so um, they really loved it And so Pandora would often name check us for a story that she'd heard about that week and mentioned the week unwrapped. And then suddenly we got this bump of the high, low audience coming to the week unwrapped and then they stick around and then the audience churns around. So I think that kind of, I suppose it's influences, it's podcast influences, really. Mm -hmm. And I think traditionally the way of doing that was to just invite podcasters onto your show but I think more, more important, I think, is podcasters listening to your show and telling their audiences about it. Yes, You know, just as a pure, authentic, uh, not non-artificial um, uh, attempt to, you know, yeah. garner favour and, and bring audiences with you.
0: Yeah. So word, yeah. Word of mouth. And that goes back yeah. into what I was saying before about authenticity. There's something about podcasting, and maybe it is to do with that intimacy, that requires... Authentic endorsement. It has to be real. It's very, yeah. it also sorts the wheat from the chaff, which is my last question. In the great ocean of podcasts now, there are lots of little boats bobbing around and lots of great ocean liners, as you know, Spotify and they're all part of the game now. There's a lot of money knocking around. Is the ocean an okay place for all of them to sail or is there a division between the haves and the have-nots in terms of podcasting
1: um i suppose it depends on what you go into making your podcast for so if it's for um uh money then certainly growing your audience is to a certain extent it's getting more difficult in the sense that there are lots of other big beasts in that in that pool um but also there are a lot more shop windows because those big beasts have demanded them. So not only have you got the Apple podcast spot front page now, you've got Spotify creating playlists, you've got um, PR companies set up pr- primarily to to plug um, podcasts in various broadsheets and, and tabloids. Uh, you've got the British Podcast Awards now. I mean, there are so many more outlets because the money has come into the industry and uh, there are opportunities there I'm not saying they're necessarily equal opportunities but they are there for the taking in a way and I think you know if you're hungry enough you can at least get into some of those places both Apple and Spotify have human beings curating their their front pages there's no reason why you can't push at that door um, and then uh, but I think the other reason is not just the money uh, or the, or even it's, it's also the influence so you know if you're a company, if you're a, a brand of any kind that um, wants to be seen as being on the front foot, if you're, if you're a progressive business trying to lead your industry, a podcast is a really strong place to start because you can set an agenda which your rivals and your peers all listen to. Um, and that's not about money. That's, that's more about marketing, potentially marketing spend. But ultimately, it doesn't matter if you don't get into the apple podcast charts as long as you hit your really quality audience square on the on the on the nose so you know having you know the the thousand most important people in your industry listening to it is far more important than having 500,000 people that couldn't give a toss
0: yeah absolutely uh, going back to right at the beginning of of the, the the web industry it was all about niche wasn't it it was about fishing where the fish are your fish, the particular fish that you were after. Having said that, it's always felt to me uh, that as an amateur, well, I was I was started off as a professional podcaster. I was working for Delicious Magazine. But, you know, when you were talking about The Week, for example, Delicious Magazines, uh, web people didn't really speak podcast in those days back in 2016. And they couldn't and wouldn't do what I knew they needed to do to, to promote the the podcast fairly also there was no not enough money to be able to be on the same playing field as some of the sort of more professional sounding podcasts so i didn't ever have access to anything more than this um i've never had a studio in my life for any of the podcasts i've done i like it that way now but it did mean i remember when i first met sheila Dillon. And I was producing content that was very similar to the to the food programme. She comes from a completely different world. In fact, I ended up interviewing her and we got a great interview out of her. Um, <laughs> but she just couldn't get her head around the fact that I was just literally holding a Zoom H4N in front of her and recording on Pro Tools on my laptop. It was a different beast. And I was nominated for a Fortnum & Mason Award up against the kitchen cabinet and the food programme. There was no mm. chance in hell that I could ever be a winner on that one. And, of course, the Food Programme won and always wins, pretty much.
1: I did a show the year, I think it might have been the year after that, <laughs> and we got nominated for the Mason Award. Which and ho- that was all just recorded in the kitchen. It was um, a Guardian show called Let's Eat. That's right.
0: That's um, right. That was the, the, the following year. Yeah.
1: Following year, yeah, 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 and and we just recorded that all in our kitchen. Um, I remember it. Just inviting people around. Yeah, and, it, and you know, I think I think they are surprised when those kind of shows pop up, for sure.
0: Yeah, but you know, so you've got a lot of podcasts vying for attention. You've got a lot of uh, a lot of podcast awards now vying for attention, and it feels to me that it's always the BBC programs that are winning or those who have access to studio, university podcasts, for example, you know, places where there are studios. I, I, it doesn't matter, obviously, but does it matter in terms of, um, I'm thinking of the Miranda Sawyers, the, the people who are passing judgment, does it matter what about the quality of a
1: podcast well, this is something that we have thought a lot about with my other hat on for the British Podcast Awards, which is what makes a good podcast and should simply sound quality be a, a mitigating factor or whether, whether it should be focused on the content. Um, and I think essentially, as long as, it's, as, long as the focus is right, this is, what we, this is the conclusion we came to, as long as the focus was deliberate, then it didn't matter. Because as long as it was the what the producers or the presenter was wanting you to focus in on was the thing that you could hear the most. What you didn't want was it to be distorted or hard to hear, because that would be, mean that you weren't hitting your audience for very valid reasons. People have very low tolerance for bad audio, not just in audio terms, but on TV and everything as well. Um, I think about. Uh, I mean. How can I put this? This is one of those long pauses you're going to keep in, isn't <laughs> it? Um, I think the I think with with production, I don't think it matters that you're not in a studio. Um, I predominantly record outside of studios, and the overriding factor for me is more one of convenience. Like, could we get this person into a studio? No. Well, then let's go to their house. <laughs> let's go to their office. Let's turn their office into a makeshift studio. The Week and Wrapped, for example, is recorded in one of those terrible glass meeting rooms on the top floor of their building. But I insisted they cover it in foam once a week for us. So um, it looks terrible. Sounds pretty good. Um and i think that's the important thing is like and that costs you know sort of like 60 pounds like three years ago and we're mm-hmm. still using all that kit mm-hmm. so i don't think it's about affordability i think with the podcast awards i don't i don't think it's true that the bbc win everything um and in fact they've never won everything that the bpas and i don't mean that in a kind of like everything way they've never won the majority um and uh i can i could tell you now um the nominations this year are, are similar again the bbc haven't won 50% anywhere near 50% of the okay. nominations for this year's awards mm. because there's a really healthy uh, independent sector now uh, and of course other larger broadcasters are, are getting involved but actually independents are still the majority mm. of nominees um and last year the big winner didn't have more than 5,000 listeners before they came to the awards Mm. so you know it's a different story now but
0: I suppose I'm thinking in terms of you know the missing crypto queen or something like that you know a wonderful long-running podcast couldn't exist in any other way because it was so long it it was perfect for that podcasting format time equals money If it wasn't BBC Sounds, how could anybody make something like that and go to those places, fly around the world?
1: I I would say that that is a thing to cheer the BBC for rather than to lambast everyone else on the basis that ever since Serial's first series, everyone has been looking for a show like that. And actually, it's very, very difficult. And you could argue, and I don't know what Ira said about this, but, you know. This American Life was on the air for like 10 years before they even came up with a story that was worth that. Yeah. You know, worth you did mention kind of that. more than two episodes. Yeah. And and then it took, you know, and then the expectation that they could repeat that that feat within a year was, uh, you know, was really difficult. Yeah. And some would say they didn't achieve it. Yeah. I think, and then they redefined what the show was in order to make a series they wanted to. And I think they scored better with their, the, the third season. I think, ultimately you know and i had a lot of conversations around that time with with newsrooms of different publishers um where they wanted to do it and i said well the the best way to do that is to listen to your investigative journalists and ask the question at every um morning briefing is this a potential podcast yeah. and it's all right to say no for three years until you find it yeah. you know and i think um what uh I think the Australian did one, didn't they? Which was a big hit. I can't remember what that was called now, but there was a true crime podcast they did. You know, so that that came out of Australia, and then
0: the LA Times did Dirty 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 John. John. Yeah,
1: you know, they had they had a very close bond with their journalists, and they picked things up quickly, and they trained people up so that they could capture the audio. And you know, again, not easy to replicate those successes either. But the Missing Crypto is one, and I think. Yeah, um, you know it might be a while to get another but god bless the bbc for finding it
0: totally and wonderful opportunities for young journalists young storytellers coming in and using very different skills i think that you know anything that expands the role of journalism and storytelling absolutely yeah big up to them um last question for you is so it's still about the little little boats bobbing about on that ocean there's a lot of um conversation in the podcast group saying just do it for the love can you still do podcasting for the love
1: i mean i do um and i make shows that i love making the fact that they uh like are more fun to make than they are like affordable to make or you know sort of they're not profitable to make is is you know it keeps me keeps me a little bit sane I think um so I make a little uh show about for formula about formula one which I I detest the sport I have no interest in it whatsoever but I met three people totally separately who all love the sport but I couldn't work out why so Every every uh, couple of weeks um, during the race season we, we, we go down the pub and we record an episode in a pub reviewing the race and I try and make sense of why why they like it. Um, and they try and fix the sport because they also agree that it's when we started it it was massively corrupt and all sorts of problems mm-hmm. to be fixed. And some of them have, but there's still a lot of grift in it. So um, so I I made that show because I, I really love hanging out with his people and uh, I think it has a really nice loyal audience we picked up our second sponsor of the last five years uh, earlier this month um, for, you. for whenever that season actually begins
0: what's the podcast and called?
1: it's called For F1's Sake and uh, and you know what it's it does its um, it does its things really well I love it um, and uh, its audience loves it and you know with those shows actually what i've tended to do is look at you know at least getting them to pay their way in some way so listeners can buy uh us a beer if they like the show um the equivalent of a price of beer uh through paypal and then that covers the beer and the food wow and so we all get like a nice meal out once a, a couple of times a month is that a voluntary in the evenings
0: is that a voluntary thing is that how does that work
1: yeah so we we kind of like agree that it's a, it's a we split we split everything four ways we own we own it four four ways um and uh and then the money just pays for everything that we do around the podcast um but that's i think that's part of the community of it i think sometimes a podcast it doesn't have to be a big. Like success, it just has to be right for those people at that time it's it's like how, you know, I think the film industry are very good at looking at screenplay and saying, you know what, that's a million dollar budget and this is a 200 million dollar budget and I think with podcasting we've got to think like that we've got to think, well what is the reasonable size of this audience, what is the amount of time we're willing to put in to make it and then sometimes th- the sponsorship might cover that and if it doesn't, are there other revenue streams and if there aren't does it does it is it worth being made sometimes it is just for the love
0: just in terms then matt of knowing what to charge for something what is your worth you've actually got quite a good sort of um way of working it out haven't you
1: yeah so we what we try and do is look at in different mediums what the what the pricing structure is and just port them over to podcasting so if you're doing for example a like a a trade magazine you know sort of like a podcast for a very specific group of people like you know uh like a horse racing uh podcast then you might uh look at your listenership and say oh well it's you know sort of six thousand people and then um you might you can find out very easily what the abc circulation figures are for the racing post call up the racing post desk and ask to ask them how much a quarter page ad in their magazine is and uh, and that that could be your like you know sort of mid-roll ad price you know whether that's a grand or 800 pounds or whatever But based on the idea that, you know, you have value in your listeners, particularly that small scale, if you've got a very targeted focus group that you know are the only ones that could possibly be listening that, you know, they must love horse racing above other things. You know, that's what that's the kind of audience that that has a value and you should you should charge on that basis. And again, you know, charge more for a pre-roll because that seems to be the done thing, even though it's the time at which you can press the skip button easiest. So I never quite understood why that is the case but there we go so you might charge a full page ad for a pre-roll you know think about it in those terms i think is quite useful um and simply you know we have a section on the this magazine show called the modern man which is basically sex tips and those those tips you know uh are quite useful for people who do like you know sort of and summer style stuff um they're an audience that are open-minded and you know you want to pedal to those people so so you can have a really open discussion about how much that is worth with them. And you'd be surprised how um, how willing they are to, to talk about those kind of numbers.
0: Thanks for listening. You can buy the book, How to Start and Grow a Successful Podcast, by me, Julie Smith, from any bookshop, or go to my website, jillysmith.com, and click on the bookshop tab. Next week, I'll be with James Ramsden from the Kitchen is on Fire podcast on building a niche community. I'll see you then.